six. I thought I'd bring a bag this morning with all my stuff. And I found this one, and I thought it was cute. So I thought I'd save it for later. Isaiah chapter 46. We've been studying through aspects of the gospel with the hope that Christ is speaking to us about just the, the different aspects of the gospel, the different um, points of it, so that we can have a better understanding with the hope that maybe we will um, preach it to ourselves as well as preach it to, um, to others when, when, that, when the opportunity is given. And so uh, we've preached about the doctrine of adoption. We've preached about the good news and the fact that 1 Corinthians 15 um, talks about that we should uh, preach the gospel to ourselves as as a, a moment of priority, that it's, that it's not just to go and pre- preach with those who have not heard it, but also to those who have heard it. Just a reminder uh, of what the good news actually is. We also have um, talked about the bad news of how sin separates us and how... Uh, Really, because of the curse, because of sin, because of rebellion, a sin needs to be disciplined. Sin needs to be cleared away. Someone needs to uh, to stand in our place. Someone needs to receive, uh, you know, the punishment for sin. And with the bad news, we, we went ahead and just talked about the good news and the fact that Jesus takes that away, which is actually what we're going to talk about this morning: uh, the doctrine of atonement. And I'll speak speak about that. We also talked about how when, when we are saved, we become these mercy vessels. We become these messengers of re- ministers of reconciliation, messengers of the hope that we have in Christ, and then um, that we go and we help our neighbors, we love our neighbors because of that. And so this morning we're going to talk about the doctrine of atonement, about Christ taking our place, so that we can have a hopefully a refreshed understanding of it, or um, if you don't know anything about it at all, then a, 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 under, a better understanding or a new understanding of the doctrine of atonement. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump into to God's word together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are an incredible God who provides for all of our needs. God, you you and the fact that you are all-knowing know exactly what we need, particularly when it comes to sin and brokenness and rebellion. And so you provide for us those things. And then on top of that, your word promises us that you'll provide for, for our everyday needs. When we forget about sin separating, we forget about salvation, that as we are living for you and for your kingdom, you, you promise to meet the needs of all of life. So God, I pray this morning that as we study your word, that you would speak through it. God, that we would be convicted but it would be a holy conviction from you. And God, if Satan tries to put guilt upon us, God, we would recognize that as not being from you. But the, the good news of the gospel is that your, your desire is to remove guilt from us, remove sin from us, no longer the grave being our future or death being our future, but instead life. So God, speak to us this morning through your word, that you might be glorified, that we might listen to you, that we might be changed by you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. 
A definition of the doctrine of atonement basically is this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by offering himself as a sacrifice and by substituting himself in our place, paying in full the penalty of sin and actually bearing the punishment, which you and I should have received, satisfied the Father. It effected a reconciliation between God and between us and between God and man, becoming our justification and by imputing his righteousness to us through faith in his perfect work of atonement. And I wanted to give you that long definition to confuse you so that I could help you in understanding a little simpler. Christ is this sacrificial substitute for our lives. That he sacrificed himself, substituting himself in our place so that we might be justified in his actions and have a right relationship with the Father. And this is huge because we forget this, I think, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we forget this daily. And the way that I see it the most, and I'm not saying that I know you better than anybody else, but as I walk with you in this journey of life, the way that I see this the most is by the things that we still carry around with us, by the baggage that we still own, by even how we carry Jesus around. Well, I'm going to use Jesus for my needs, and so I'm going to put him in my backpack or my pocket, and as soon as I need him, when there's something heavy to carry or heavy to lift, I'm going to pull Jesus out and I'm going to say, Jesus, I need you. When that is completely wrong, when you come before in confession of Christ as Lord, you are saying in that moment, Lord, I want to be saved from sin and death, yes, but desperately I need you to give me life. Not just in the future for eternity, but life at this moment. And so I'm going to stop carrying around the baggage. I'm going to stop carrying around the things that I've put on myself or others have put on me. Instead, I'm going to allow you in obedience to you. I'm going to allow you to be Lord of my life. And I want you to carry me. I want you to sustain me. You've become my sacrifice. You've become my substitute. You've justified me before the Father because of your righteousness. And so because of that, I'm desperately in need of you to carry me throughout all of eternity. Do you know these, um, have you seen these videos on like maybe YouTube or social media or something where you have these dads who are, and I know moms get, like they get a lot of credit for this and maybe you taught the dads how to do this, okay? So don't be offended moms by me just pointing out dads. Uh, because you spend like nine months carrying babies and then for a little while dads have to carry the babies, okay? And so we like learn how to multitask, like how to carry the baby and push the swing for the other kids. And then and maybe you've seen the videos, it's like kids falling out of swings and dads like miraculously catching kids all while holding, like the one I'm thinking about right now is the dad at the baseball game catching the foul ball, holding the baby and the nachos. I'm just going to label those nachos. Maybe it wasn't nachos, but you know what I'm saying. Like he's got the baby and the nachos and he catches the foul ball maybe in the nachos. Just go YouTube it. You've, you've seen it, okay? And like how incredible this is. And people are like applauding him. Like, why isn't he playing on the field? Because you can't have babies on the field. Like, that's why he's not on the team. He's got that baby. He's carrying that baby around. Uh, it's, a, it's a somewhat of a picture of what's happening to us or what should be happening to us. When we're understanding the doctrine of atonement, when we're understanding Christ substituting his life for ours, and then he's carrying us through, he never lets go of us. You understand that, right? Like, like we're not grabbing Jesus and saying, oh, Jesus... You're perfect, your righteousness is good, your holiness is awesome, and I want some of that, so please give me some of that. And then when I need it again, I'll come back to you. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not Santa Claus. We can't have that kind of attitude about him. 
or that mentality about him. We have to have a greater understanding of what's happening. We are giving our life to him. And so he begins to carry us. We lay aside all idols. We lay aside all junk. And we say all garbage. And we say we are giving our life to you. You carry us. You sustain us. You use us for your glory. It's the story we read, or the, the, the thought that we read last week about you're on a ship and you're, you're in the sea and the thunderstorm is coming and the wind is howling and all those things. And you know the ship captain. You know the, the commander of the storm. You know all these things. Christ is, Christ is yours. And so because of that, Christ is carrying you. And I want to read to you from the journal of John Wesley. John Wesley, uh, him and his brother founded uh, the Methodist denomination. And uh, John Wesley, I, I mentioned to him, you, I mentioned to you about him before when he went to save the Americas. And uh, all the while, not even being saved himself, saying that, uh, that he went as a slave, as a slave to Jesus, but not understanding the doctrine of adoption, that Christ has made him part of his family, has adopted him as son. So he said on his traveling evangelistic journeys, I knew that I was a slave but I had no idea that I'm actually a son. So he gets that in his mind. So he's traveling with some Germans, and they're going on these evangelistic journeys. And he says this, At seven I went to the Germans. I long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior, of their humility that they had given a continual proof by performing those servile offices for the other passengers. So, they, so these Germans, these Christian Germans, were serving others despite what was going on, which none of the English would even undertake. So they were giving a, an example of service, while none of the other English, and he's specifically talking about those who are Christians that he was with, would even do those things, for which they desired and would receive no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts, and their loving Savior had done much more for them. So they had this understanding, this reality of who they belonged to. And every day they had, been, they had given them occasion of showing a meekness with which no injury could move. If they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose again and went away, but no complaint was found in their mouth. There was now an opportunity of trying. Whether they were delivered from the spirit of fear, as well as from that of pride, anger, and revenge. So in the midst of the song wherewith their service began, the sea broke. So now a storm is coming. The sea broke over. It split the mainsail into pieces. And it covered the ship and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. So you can kind of get this picture in your head. The ship is breaking. The storm is over. The waves are coming over the ship. A terrible screaming began among the English. A terrible screaming began among the English. Yet the Germans calmly sung on. And so I asked one of them afterwards. This is funny how this is worded, so I'm going to read it. I'm not correcting this, okay? He asked one of them afterwards, was you not afraid? And he answered, this German answered, I thank God, no. And so I asked, but were not your women and your children afraid? And he replied, he replied mildly, no. 
Our women and children are not afraid to die. Why do they know? Why? Why is this? From them, I went to their crying, trembling neighbors and pointed out to them the difference, the difference in the hour of trial between him that feareth God and him that feareth him not. And at twelve, the wind fell. This was the most glorious day which I have hitherto seen. So in all that, there's this understanding that these German Christians had a right understanding of who their God is, who was carrying them, who the commander of the ship was, as well as the commander of the storm. And so they had a rightly placed fear, which we talked about last, last week, an understanding of who, of who Christ is and what he's, what he's done and what he's doing and what he's going to do. And when we have an understanding of Christ being our substitute, when we have a right understanding of the doctrine of atonement, we understand that he's not just carrying us away from sin or away from death, but he's actually sustaining us throughout all of life. In that moment, the Germans realizing in the storm that yes, I have salvation, but I also will continue to trust Christ in this moment. Abraham, with the directions of go and sacrifice your son. All through that story, through that moment in history, an understanding Christ is the one or God is the one who's commanded this, and so I will continue to trust in him and him alone. Not in my own actions, not in my knife, not in my son, not in the table, but instead I'm going to trust in my God. And what does God do? He provides because he's a God who always provides. So let's read this chapter together from Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46, I think goes well, if you, if you like to cross-reference ever. And I will give this to you next week when we're together. So this is a little bit of a preview, a trailer of some things next week that we're going to talk about that may seem redundant, but I think it's important for us to understand so that we have a better understanding of the gospel. But Isaiah 46 and Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 go together. And by what I mean by that is Isaiah 46 is a picture of is a picture of what is happening in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And part of that picture is the doctrine of atonement, of Christ carrying us, of him being our substitute, of him being the sustainer of life, of him taking away our sin, removing death, and giving us life and life eternal in this very moment. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 1 begins with this, a little bit, a little bit of a party or celebration or parade. It says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. So you need to understand that Bell and Nebo are false gods, little g-gods that the Babylonians are making up. They're some of the oldest false gods in the Bible, and uh, the Babylonians made them. You know Babylon is the place where uh, the Tower of Babel was. They got confused all the languages and they began to babble, right? They began to not even understand themselves. What were they trying to do? They were trying to reach God, build a staircase or build a tower that could go up to the heavens. Babylon was, was known to be a place like a gate, like an entryway to go and meet the gods. And so with that being said, Baal and Nebo are some of these gods that the Babylonians are trying to meet. Baal means uh, lowercase l, Lord, Nebo means little case, little case or lowercase p, prophet, Lord and prophet. Just a little precursor here. You know that Jesus fulfills all that, right? He is Lord. He is the greatest prophet. He fulfills all that. We don't need two people. We have one person, Jesus. Yet the Babylonians have all these gods. And so it says in this case, Bel 
This false god, what is he doing? Nebo, this false god who's supposed to be a prophet, who's supposed to be Lord, what are they doing? They are bowing down, they are bending, they are stooping down below themselves. It says in this not-so-triumphal entry, this parading around, these false gods, what happens? They're bowing down, they're stooping. Their idols are on beast and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beast. What's happening in this not-so-triumphal entry? These gods, little g, are being paraded around. They have to be carried because they're lifeless. They're, they're a burden in themselves as they're riding on a beast of burden. These false idols are being carried almost as refugees on the back of beast, carried like garbage to the pit or to the landfill. It's not so triumphal. I hope you're catching this. We have a difference, a huge difference. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, prophesies about this. Isaiah 62, verse 11, prophesies about this. We see the fulfillment of it in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, in the actual triumphal entry of the one who's coming to rescue us all, who is not bowing down to anyone. Instead, Philippians chapter 2 says, everyone will bow at his name, at the name of Jesus. Jesus comes in on the beast of burden also but full of life, full of rescuing, full of perfection, full of power, full of authority. No one forcing him, no one bending him, no one making him bow down, yet he submitting to the Father bows down in our place. He submitting to the Father in the Father's will bends in our place where we should be like Baal and Nebo being taken as refugees and as garbage to a landfill to be cast away and carried away, Christ stands in our place and, and becomes the substitute for us. Verse 2 says this, They, meaning Baal and Nebo, they stoop down, they bow down together. What? What happens with them? They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. They cannot save the burden. Why? Because they are a part of it. They are a part of the burden. You know that Jesus didn't come to say, let me be part of the burden. Let me be a part of the brokenness. Let me, let me add weight to you. He doesn't say those things. In fact, he says the opposite. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, he, uh, verse 30, he reminds us that he comes to take the weight off of us. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. He comes to remove that. He comes to save. The word there, they cannot save, is the very word rescuer. They cannot rescue. Why? Because they are in need of rescuing themselves. God is not in need of rescuing. The bad news is not that God cannot save or is in need of rescuing. The bad news is that we cannot save. And nothing in this world that we run to will rescue us. The bad news is that we are in need of rescuing. Nothing that we can do will save us. But the good news is there is someone who can save, who has provided the entire way for us to be saved. Verse 2 again, they stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Just a little side note. You know that many of the things that we run to in this world just lead us into a more burdensome life. It's like adding more garbage and weight to our backpack and struggling through life and wondering 
Why is it we feel so exhausted? Why is it we feel so weighted down? Why do my knees hurt daily? Is it the weight of sin that we're trying to carry or bear on our own? Or is it the things that we're running to that we think are going to help us? I mean, in a simple statement, my granddad used to say, you can tell us all you want that you're on a diet and you're counting calories, but if you're truly not on that diet, we will know. We'll watch your belly jiggle. We'll know if you're actually on a diet, if you're actually counting calories. When you're trying to bear this weight on your own, when you're trying to bear the burdens on your own, running to the things of the world like food maybe, or like whatever the case may be, will show up. It will show up at some point. And so we want to move to a place where we're recognizing that Christ has substituted his life for ours. And that we get to have his life. He gives it, he gives us, gives it to us so that we have it, taking the weight of this world off of us. Verse 3 says this, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Just in those three short verses already, I hope that you see carrying, born, stooping, saving, carrying, born, birth, womb, all these, these kind of themes that are in these three short verses already. God is trying to remind, He's trying to remind these, uh, remind Israel of who created them, who is Creator God, who has power to create, who know, who knew them before they were even born, who has been carrying them or sustaining their life since before they were born. And I hope that you, at some point, recognize that for your own life too. Who has been created? Who has created you? Who has known you before you were born? Who has been carrying you? Who will continue to carry you? And I would say run to that thing, which we're, we're making the point this morning that that thing is actually a person, and that person is Jesus, the being, the, the God, Jesus. We're running to him. We're saying, you, you've known me. You've carried me already. Let me not run to other things. Instead, let me run to you so that you can continue to carry me. Speaking of continuing, verse 4 says, Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made you, and I will bear. I will carry you, and I will save. Do you recognize all the I's in that, the I am statement even in that? Who is it that's carrying? Even through to gray hairs. Who is it that's made us? Who is it that's bearing the weight for us? Who is it that's carrying us? And who is it that's saving us? Well, the answer is, like Sunday school, Jesus. He's the one that's doing all those things. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and verse 11, talk about this, about Christ, prophesying about, prophesying about Christ coming to bear the weight of sin, to, to, to bear the weight of our iniquities, that we might have his life, that we might have his righteousness, that we might have his purity, that we might have his holiness. Can I just read these again? Even to your old age, I am he. How many things, folks, saints this morning who are much older than myself, how many things throughout your life have you ran to and you tried to carry around and you're getting to that point in your old age where you're, where you're recognizing it's only Christ. 
Christ is it. He's the only thing that sustained me through life. And so because of that, he's the only thing that will sustain me through the rest of the life on this earth and throughout eternity. So let him continue to carry you. I will carry you. I have made you. And I will bear the weight. I will carry and I will save. In the doctrine of atonement, we're understanding that God provides all of this for us. We're not having to come up with a substitute. Let me find a substitute. A substitute teacher like Lovington Public Schools who desperately needs substitutes. Every day it seems like. They probably already have like a list of teachers who already know they need to substitute. And they're searching right now for the new school year. Hey, we need substitutes. That's not the way it is with life. It's not a good picture. It's a good picture of the broken world. It's not a good picture of what Christ has done for us. He has provided the substitution. He has provided the rescuing. And so because of that, we run to him and him alone. No longer searching. Verse 5. If you're confused about any of this, I feel like God is saying, if you're confused about any of this, let me just ask you this question. To whom will you liken me and make me my, my equal and compare me that we may be alike? Try. Like who made you? Who's bearing the weight for you? Who's carrying you? Who's saving you? For sure it's not Bell. For sure it's not Nebo. So if they can't, and you've been running to them in idolatry, if you can't compare me to them, what should you do in this, this moment? You should trust in God. And to him and to him alone. We do this still today. Maybe you don't have a bell. Maybe you don't have a Nebo that you have in your house that you're worshiping or carrying around. But you probably have something. Because we're sinners who run to sinful things. We're imperfect people who rely on imperfect things. We can't do that anymore. We have to flee from idolatry. We have to trust in Christ. Trust in God. Trust that he has provided the substitute and the sacrifice. And that we can trust in him. And that nothing, nothing no thing, no one compares to him. And so we give our entire life to him. Verse 6. Those who, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship it. I guess I didn't want to hear myself say this, so I turned my, <laughs> turned my mic off. That's kind of weird. Is that, maybe that's like some kind of Freudian thing. I think I'm about to preach to myself here. How much money have we spent on idols? How much money have we spent on things that we think are going to satisfy us? And then we fall down in worship of those, of those things. Let's just think about that for a second. think about my own life, the many, many, many things that I have wasted thinking that is going to bring satisfaction. All the while knowing, because I've been taught well, it's not going to, I'm going to try it for myself. Thinking it's going to, it's going to bring, it's going to bring satisfaction. And it never does. Instead it does the opposite. It adds more weight. I'm falling down to this thing that I've spent time and effort and money putting into, thinking it's going to fulfill me, thinking that as soon as I accomplish this or as soon as I've done this, it's going to satisfy all my needs. And all I've done is created another substitute. 
But Christ has said, I, Christ has said, I am the substitute. I'm saying, I understand that. And maybe you are. But I want this to be the substitute. And so I'm going to put time and effort and money and resources into it, expecting it to fulfill me. And I fall down in worship of it. Church, we cannot do that. Verse 7 says this, This God that they had made for them out of silver and gold, what do they do? They lift it to their shoulders and they carry it. They take these things that they've made and they pick them up and they place them on their shoulders. This is really something that we deal with a lot in America. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. We create an idol. We make it into the likeness that we want it to be. And we hope that it will satisfy or give us what our hearts are longing for. And then we place it on our shoulders and carry it around, hoping that it will fulfill us. Moralistic therapeutic deism, this is what we do with the Lord also. We say that there is a God who is created, who is a creator God, and he's put order into all the world, and he watches over us. He's just like this great, godly God with a cool beard who's watching over us saying, I created you, and I, and I want you to do right. That this God wants us to be good people, to be nice people, to be fair to one another. And even maybe the Bible teaches that. And some world religions teach that also. The central goal of moral therapeutic deism is that our life would be happy and we'd feel good about ourselves. That God doesn't necessarily want to be or need to be involved in our life. And so because of that, we only expect Him to be involved in our life when we need Him to resolve a problem. You sit up there as the big guy in the sky on your throne and when we need you, we'll come and take you off our shoulder and put you into practice. And then what that really leads to is that good people, all good people, all moral people, when they die, they will go to heaven because they were good, because they had the idol on their shoulder, because at the times of most need, they cried out to a God created this God in the likeness they wanted it to be in hopes that it would satisfy them, picked it up and placed it where they wanted it to be placed. You stay here. You stay above the donut shop and we'll give you a donut every now and then. You stay in this place. Listen, God, Sundays belong to you. The rest of the week belongs to to me. Listen, God, 10% belongs to you. The rest of the stuff belongs to me. Listen, God, this marriage, you stay out of it. I'm going to do what I want to do. Listen, God, I'm going to parent how I want to parent because I want to raise my kids in my likeness, how I want them to be, whatever the case may be. Listen, God, this is my work. Your work was on the cross. My work is here. Let me do my thing. That's moralistic therapeutic deism. I'm going to do good. I'm going to create a God into my likeness, into my image. And I'm going to put him on my shoulder and place him where I want him to go. And that's what these people are doing. They go and pay somebody to create an idol for them. And what is it? I mean, the symbolism here. They're placing this idol 
on top of themselves. They're putting it in their backpack and carrying it around. We're going to make it easier on ourselves. We're going to put two straps on it and, and cinch it up so it's, so it's easier to carry around. You're going to do good with that rucksack carrying all those idols. You're going to do well with this. We applaud you even. Wow, all that weight that you're bearing. Good job in that. And all the while the church should be screaming, take the backpacks off. Carry the weight no more. Christ is the ultimate substitute. He sacrifices life for yours so that you no longer have to carry that weight anymore. They lift it, verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And what does it do? It just stands there. It actually does nothing other than place dead weight on you. They lift it to the shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. It cannot. It has no power. It's not alive. It's dead. And then here's where it gets me every time. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Why? Because it's not a living God. Why? Because it's not a heavenly Father. Instead, Christ in all and his all-knowing provides for us in all his power himself as Heavenly Father, who if you cry to Him, the author of Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who knows all our struggles. We have a God who knows everything and can relate to us and can answer us and can take the weight off of us. So we no longer run to these false idols, these substitutes that we're making, hoping that at some point this substitute maybe even as we sacrifice this substitute in an act of religiousness or ritualistic uh, Christianity in a sense, oh, I'm going to sacrifice my idol this morning in hopes that I'm going to, I'm going to do better. See, see Christ how I am? Sacrificing my idol this morning? No, Christ is saying, Christ is saying, see that I am the sacrifice. And verse 8 and 9 say this. They say, remember this. And what happens when you remember this? You can stand firm. See the image there in relation to the image in verses 1 and 2? The stooping and the bowing down. Now when we remember who the I am is, what can we do? We can stand firm. We can stand firm when we recall it to our mind. And then God puts this little thing in here. Oh, you rebellious. Rebellers, oh you transgressors, you little sinners. Remember the former things of old. What are we supposed to remember in this? He says, remember this. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. There is no one like God. And so in our daily life, as soon as we try and pick up the backpack full of garbage... As soon as we try and form an idol into our likeness or whatever we want it to do, we try and place it on our shoulders and we carry this around, we remember, no, this is not God. Instead, we remember from old, from the former things of old, who is God. 
And he goes on to say in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning, in the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. You hear that image again, the wording there again? Those little gigots from the beginning, they were bowing down. They were bending. They were being carried. And God is saying, no one will carry me. I will never bow down. I will bend to no one. Instead, the opposite is true. Everyone will bow to me. His counsel shall stand. It's not like in verse 10 here. He's not asking us to help him to become successful. It's not like he looks at us and says, Oh, if I just had Matt Thack, or Matt Thackerson, then, then I'll be successful. So I'm going to wait till uh, the 80s and 19, 1900s and I'm going to create him and then my kingdom will flourish and then things will go right. Once I have him doing the right things and being the good person that I want him to be, then I will succeed. It's not what God is saying. He's not saying, wow, I'm looking down there at the church and it's meeting and loving and saying, man, they got a, they got a lot of good, good strengths. Man, there's they're some good people. Why don't I use them? Maybe my kingdom will <clears throat> extend. It's not what he's saying. He's saying his wisdom, his authority, who he is, his plans, his counsel, it shall stand. Do you know, do you hear the image there, the same thought when Jesus says that his church will not die, that it will always stand? He's not asking us to give him counsel. No, he's not in need of that. He's not asking us to give him our strengths or our personality or our resources. No, he's not in need of that. Instead, he's asking us to recognize who he is. Remember from old, I am God. None of these things on this earth is. You are not. I am God. And in that, you'll understand that you can stand because his purposes will stand. He's not, even in this verse 10, I'm just going to throw this out here also. He's not like just hoping for the best. You know what I'm saying? All right, well, Christ died on the cross. He rose from the grave. Well, power to you people, and here's, here's to, uh, to your best. Hope you guys uh, work it all out. No, he has a plan that is going to be accomplished for his glory. And because of that, we trust in him. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east. This is about a guy named, about Cyrus, the man of my counsel from afar. I've spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. I will do it. God will act. He will act. Verses 12 and 13, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. It's really harsh language here. You whose hearts have been hardened, you who are rebellious, you who are far from me, you stubborn of heart. We hear the same language in Zechariah when we preach through this, Zechariah chapter 7 and Malachi chapter 3. Same kind of thought, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from my righteousness. Think about this. If you are far from somewhere and you need to be close to whatever it is you're trying to get to, you have to figure out a plan to get there, right? How will we get to this? We're far off. How will we get to this place? Will we work ourselves there? Will we earn our way there? Will we slowly get there? Or will we cry out to the one who can bring us there and say, can you get me to that place of righteousness? And what does verse 13 say? Verse 12 ends with, you are far off 
And verse 13 says, I will bring you near. Verse 12 ends with, you are far off. And verse 13 begins with, I will bring you near. Say it one more time. Verse 12 ends with, you are far off. And verse 13 says, I will bring you near. He provides the substitute. He provides the sacrifice. He provides the work. He provides the way. Think about this. Verse 1 in Babylon, when they're having this not-so-triumphal entry, and the little g-gods are being brought in on the back of beast of burden, and people are trying to celebrate this, but they see their little g-gods being carried, being carried on the back of a beast of burden. Idols that they created, and they have no hope. They're in need of rescuing, and they have no hope. Here we are in Babylon thinking that we have the way, that we're the gates to the God, and yet our gods are dead. And what does verse 13 end with? I will provide the way. What does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He provides, he provides the way. He provides the way. He is our provider. And as long as we try and continue to carry the weight around, carry sin around, try and bear our own burdens, we will be exhausted. We have to take Jesus' words as truth when he says, Come to me, all you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will remove the yoke from upon you. I will remove the burden from upon you. And I will, I will carry, I will carry you. When I was working with my best friend's family, we were working on the farm. We were planting cotton. And on the front of the tractor, there's a bunch of tractor weights uh, to help uh, keep the front of the tractor down as you're plowing and as you're planting the cotton. And uh, my job was just to refill the planter boxes when they were out of uh, seed. And so my best friend Brett uh, shows up over to where the seed truck was. And uh, he was so excited, he wanted to show me. He's like, hey, watch this. And so he hits the throttle on the tractor, and the tractor was doing wheelies. The front of the tractor was lifting off the ground. And we were laughing. I mean, this was, it was awesome. I mean, here we are teenagers, like, looking around, making sure, like, Brett's dad's not, like, watching us as we're probably about to break this, you know, multi-hundred-thousand-dollar tractor as we're doing wheelies with it, you know. And it's just so cool. It's so much fun. And then I asked him, like, the simple question, like, how long has it been doing that? He's like, I, don't, I just started. I don't even know. Like, you know, I was like, is it supposed to do that? And we were both, like, kind of, you know, analyzing the situation. No, it's not supposed to do that. It's not supposed to do that. So we begin looking like, what, what happened? So he jumps off the tractor and we're walking around looking to see what happened. And all the tractor weights had fallen off. All the tractor weights from the front of the tractor had fallen off. They'd come unbolted and every tractor weight, which is weird because they're supposed to just like latch on in a way. They'd all fallen off. And with the freedom of not being weighted down, my best friend could do some wheelies in the tractor. And in that moment, in the heat of the summer or the spring as we're planting cotton, in the long day, in the dustiness and the hard work, the 16-hour days, there was a moment of joy. And the moment of joy happened simply because the tractor weights fell off. And I don't think the joy of salvation can be restored to you, people, church people, saints, sinner, until the weight of sin is fully lifted off. And as long as we run to false idols, as long as we run to silly 
earthly substitutes, as long as you run to those things, those dead things will continue to weigh us down. But the moment that we run or recognize Jesus and we say, you are the ultimate substitute, you have paid the price, remove my sin from me, restore to me the joy of salvation. The weight is removed, and sorry to be silly, but you start doing wheelies because the weight is removed. Do not carry Jesus. Do not carry sin. Do not carry God home with you. Do not carry God to your work. Do not carry Jesus to your marriage. Do not carry Jesus to your schools. Instead, let Jesus carry you. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I know as an imperfect person, I've missed many things that need to be said. And so at this moment, recall to mind or show to us the idols that we are carrying around, the gods that we have created, the things that we are relying on that are actually burdening us. And God, would you this morning, for the saint who has been walking in your way for many years, yet they're exhausted, God, would you give them rest this morning? Would you give them freedom? God, would you restore to them the joy of salvation? Yeah, for the person in this room this morning that maybe has not confessed Christ as Lord, but yet is still depending on their own actions to save them, God, would you speak to them and so in your speaking they may recognize you as the rescuer and may come to you for rescuing. God, help us to see what Christ has done for us and that he is in this moment, as he saved us, now carrying us and sustaining us and will continue to do that forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.